A quick note to our listeners, the interviews in this episode were conducted earlier this summer, and we wanted to give you an idea of when they took place as it pertains to COVID-19. All right, ready to go on? Ready. Okay. Food is personal to each and every one of us. And while what we consume every day is such a personal decision, many of us are unfamiliar with where this food actually comes from, how it affects our health, how it affects the environment, and the many disparities between how different communities access food. In this episode of Stories from the Floodplain, we talk with three different organizations making an impact on food and their communities. Dave Bishop with Prairie Earth Farm, Molly Gleason with Illinois Stewardship Alliance, and Stephen Tarver and Marcella Woodson with Men of Power, Women of Strength in Cairo, Illinois. Each of them provide an interesting perspective on how we can impact the food system, and we're thankful they sat down to talk with us. As usual, PRN's Robert Hirschfeld conducted the interviews. Here's how it went. Dave Bishop and his family have been farming the same plot of land for more than 35 years, a business called Prairie Earth Farm. Here's a snippet of our interview with Dave. I am here with Dave Bishop of Prairie Earth Farm. Dave, thank you very much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. What is life as a farmer like in 2020? Crazy. Like everyone else, I think. Uh, We're just trying to figure out how to uh, adapt to a new reality and to uh, survive. What does that mean for you? What is... What does survival look like right now? Well, I think it looks like how do we stay in business in very uncertain times. Uh, The business model that uh, was just fine a few months ago is suddenly no longer uh, appropriate. We have to look at how our farm operates and how what kind of changes that we have to make to stay relevant in this uh, new reality. And to a great extent, that has to do with be able to shift the business model to where exactly the markets are. Restaurants are suddenly gone. Grocery stores are suddenly expanding. Uh, consumer preferences for direct marketing, CSA, the farmer's market model, a direct delivery model have suddenly uh, exploded. And so the challenge for us is how do we adopt and change and adjust our business model to accommodate the changing consumer preferences. I would venture to say that you're not the typical Central Illinois row crop farmer. Um, Describe a little bit what Prairie Earth Farm is and uh, how your operation works. Well, Prairie Earth Farm in Central Illinois is 480 acre operation. A little over 40 acres of vegetable crops. So we do have livestock, primarily beef cattle. Uh, And we also do raise uh, corn, soybeans, and small grains like wheat and oats. Uh, We typically have a fairly substantial rotation. uh, Since we are a certified organic operation, we don't use chemicals. And uh, that has proven uh, to be a lot more of a management challenge. But I think we're really very happy that we went that direction. What was the business model before? Were you really servicing a lot of restaurants? What you said it was working four months ago. What was that model? Well, the model four months ago was we're trying to maintain an even mix. Uh, You know, diversity is important not only in production, but in marketing. Uh, 
And so we had restaurants and stores, we had direct, consumer direct, we had grocery stores, and we tried to keep a reasonable balance there. Well, all of a sudden, literally overnight, uh, the restaurant orders just stopped. And we began to get orders, almost panic orders, I guess, from grocery stores. What do you have? What can you send us? And uh, when you know panic sets in, and all of a sudden, you have to become really careful about what you're doing. And so we started moving in the direction of uh, the grocery stores, because that was a, a logical way to go. Uh, when consumer demand for direct, particularly the CSA model, began to increase, uh, that took a little bit more adjusting as far as how we do things on the farm. But uh, it was obvious that this was going to be a successful market. And so we began to expand and adjust to, to more CSAs, more home delivery type of uh, services. You said that you have to beware of panic. You wrote an op-ed, I think, recently. And you started <laughs> off talking about that people's priorities came clearly into view when this thing broke. Everybody was worried about toilet paper. Yes, that was, uh, that was one thing I would not have guessed, that uh, our biggest fear would be running out of toilet paper. Uh, but I suppose, you know, if you run out of food, uh, that becomes a mood issue, right? You won't need the toilet paper very long. But it does point out that people's reaction in a crisis situation is not necessarily always logical. Now with food, what does that mean to me as a food producer? Well, I've got to be very careful what kind of changes I make so that my changes serve the needs of people, whether they really at that moment uh, perceive that as their biggest need or not. And uh, when people fear not being able to get access to food, whether it's because the restaurant's closed or whether it's because as was the case with milk, that we have milk, we have supply, we have demand, but we're suddenly unable to put the two together. And when the consumer, when, when anyone, myself included, sees something like that happen, that, uh, that creates fear. In, in any rational person, that creates fear. How do we address that? And I think that's one of the challenges of the times. How do you think we address that? Well, one way, of course, is to get to know the people who grow your food and so that you have a more intimate direct contact with the source of your food. Uh, certainly moving to more localized food systems. And here I mean not just production, but also the processing part. So that if you're a small, we just had actually a, a new dairy come online, Little Brown Cow Dairy in Emden, Illinois. And uh, they, they were in the process of setting up on-farm uh, processing when this happened. Well, all of a sudden now uh, the big dairies might have trouble getting milk in the right kind of cartons, but I can go to the dairy farm and take it out of the bulk tank if I need to. I, ha I have a source and that gives me a feeling of security and everybody wants to have that feeling of security, particularly with something uh, as important as food. So it all of a sudden really makes sense to get to know the people who produce your food. That is a fundamental change. And this COVID-19 has really done a good job of showing you why you need to make that connection. 
COVID may have caused some problems throughout our civilization among our institutions, but it also exposed many problems that long preceded it. Um, fragility within many of our systems and institutions. Uh, I think food clearly is at the top of that list. Um, what, as you see it, were the major problems pre-COVID? What were the major problems before this happened? Yeah, within, I, within farming and food, particularly. Uh, getting away from the more conventional uh, system that was dependent upon the consumption of non-renewable resources, like fertilizers and the continued use of pesticides and the health problems that those things were creating. I mean, that was our focus before this. We were trying to introduce the consumer to a safer and more reliable food product and one that tasted better. Uh, albeit at some increase in price, quality costs money and uh, that's just a reality of life. But consumers were, I think, seeing that and, and we were making progress. And then all of a sudden you have something like COVID-19 and not only do those things suddenly become more immediate, but all the other problems become exposed. You know, a chain, all it takes is one weak link in a chain, right? And the whole system fails. And the weak link obviously was in the processor, not being able to get food where it needs to go. And that's uh, just as critical a problem as producing. Where do we need to go? If there are opportunities in a crisis, there's certainly an opportunity for us collectively to look at our systems, our society and, and ask if this is how things should be, you know, where do you see the opportunities um, to make real change here for the better? Well, I think the opportunities are quite obvious. Uh, we need to create systems that have greater security. If, for example, you only have a handful of large meatpacking plants and something like COVID stops that, your whole system shuts down. If there had been thousands of small meat plants uh, around the country, in fact, all of the plants that, uh, the small plants around us are still operating, there is no one plant that can shut down the whole system. So this industrialization, uh, the, the, the problems in the system are suddenly exposed in a way that you couldn't have illustrated, I don't think, any other way. That's what makes this such a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I don't know how you would have shown people as clearly and as concisely what these flaws are any other way. I have no idea how you would do that. But it happened. And people can't unsee what happens. Now, are you going to act on it? That's the question going forward. And if so, are you going to pay the costs associated with changing the system? Those are decisions people have to make. Next, we spoke with our partners at Illinois Stewardship Alliance, and Molly Gleason gives us some insight into how we can push to change food and agricultural policy. I am here with Molly Gleason, Communications Director for the Illinois Stewardship Alliance. Thank you, Molly, for agreeing to be on the podcast with us. So happy to be here. What is the Illinois Stewardship Alliance and what do you do? 
Sure. The Illinois Surgical Alliance is a statewide nonprofit organization. We are an alliance of farmers and eaters. And our mission is to bring those folks together to solve problems in the food system. So that's the, that's the down and dirty version. Our officially our mission is to find, train, and amplify the leadership of farmers and eaters who use their voices and their choices to build a more just and regenerative food system. So um, the rationale behind that is that we want people to use their choices and their buying power to support local farms. But we know that that alone is not going to change the food system. We also need people to use their voices um, to help shape policy and um, change the underlying policies that are kind of supporting the current system that we have and change those to the more just and regenerative system that we'd like to see. So we do a lot of community organizing with farmers and eaters directly going out and talking to them and helping them um, build the leadership and uh, be their own voice on the issues that they care about. As you see it, what are the major problems with the food system? <laughs> um, yeah, there are a couple. I would say the probably the biggest issue is there's just too much corporate control and consolidation in the food system. And we've built a food system that encourages more consolidation and efficiency. So the things get just always continue to get bigger and more consolidated. And that pushes out our local, you know, our smaller producers. It has been responsible for uh, the rural decline. Um, we're really, <laughs> we need to encourage more, uh, more policies that really support small scale production and diversified production. Um, and that can exist alongside, you know, larger scale commodity crop production. Both those things can exist together, but right now we only have policies that support one <laughs> of those types of production and we need to support both types. So a lot of people would think that uh, efficiency is just a good in and of itself. Um, but why are small farms and diversified farms important? Why are they good? Yeah, efficiency, I, I don't want to, you know, bad mouth efficiency. Efficiency is great to a point, but then if it's the only thing that you value, then you lose out on the other things that are also good. So when you have a very efficient system, like a monocrop system, where you're only growing one or two crops, you know, that's super high production, it's very efficient, but you're losing out on the, you know, the economic benefits and the social benefits and the environmental benefits that having a more diversified production, you know, type of, when I say diversified, I mean like multi crops, um, cover cropping, using conservation practices, adding rotational grazing and livestock, growing specialty produce, like all of those things are part of a diversified system and they're less efficient to do all of those things, but it also is, it's a good, it's a much more um, beneficial to the environment, natural ecosystems. It keeps more money in local economies when you are, um, you know, growing that stuff for your, for local supply chains. So there's all these other benefits that if you only value efficiency, you're losing out on all those other things. So we're about four months into the COVID pandemic crisis, at least in the US. Um, four months into COVID, what is the state of the American food system? <laughs> um, 
That's a great question. I think, you know, what this is, what this pandemic has shown is really the cracks in the food system. It has been a, a test of the food system. And what we've seen is a, a lot of, a lot of broken links. Um, you know, there was a huge uh, a bo bottleneck in processing has been one of the biggest issues that we were talking to farmers. Actually, we're just talking to a farmer recently and they can't sell into a processor right now because the, you know, when this is going to be kind of a long story, but That's fine. <laughs> um, so when the pandemic hit, you know, the larger scale processors like Tyson and Cargill, they had to shut down their doors because they had unsafe working conditions essentially and everybody was getting sick. And so they had to shut down. So then that caused a backlog and all of the processing that trickled down even to our local producers who now you know, they can't even get into their processor until, in some cases, until 2021. So they're raising all of these, this product and they cannot get it out <laughs> to people because there's a shortage of, of local processors. And that shortage of local processors in and of itself is a policy um, problem. Like we've created, again, going back to the policies that support consolidation and efficiency, but don't allow the growth of these, the local food infrastructure and local processing. And so now we have a very corporate controlled food system. And so now when something like a pandemic hits, then we see where those cracks are and we see like, all right, maybe it's not great to have, you know, four, four major companies in control of the meat market because now we're having issues with supplying meat. So that's, and I think that's been a huge issue. Um, I, I think the other, the other thing though, is that I, what the pandemic has shown is that people really want to buy local and they want to support their local farmers. And there was a real shift in wanting to have, you know, more control over their, of their knowing where their food comes from and wanting to have food that has literally you know, touched less hands and been through a shorter supply chain. And uh, so we're seeing people really, really want to support local, but um, it's just a matter of, we you know, we have to have the infrastructure to get the food to the people. <laughs> what will it take to collectively decide and build the infrastructure that we need? Yeah, that's a great question too. I think that, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot to ha that has to happen. Um, and there are lots of organizations out there that are working on these policies on, on the federal level, because many of them have to be addressed at a federal level, but some for sure we can do some at the state level. I think the thing that really has to happen though is people need to get involved with, you know, their local organizations that are, and get involved with the organizations that are working on these policy issues because this doesn't again um you know the buying power is great we should sh more people should buy local but nothing is really going to change unless we shift the underlying underlying policies so we need people to be involved in, in policy and um, using their voices and that's the great thing about that is it's free <laughs> it's, it's it's absolutely free to call your legislator or call your or send an email to your legislator and say that you support this issue. So it's just a matter of finding um, the organizations like uh, PRN or Illinois Stewardship Alliance that are working on these issues and getting involved with those organizations and trusting them when they say, hey, we need you to take action on this, you know, go ahead and, and click that, that button and send that email to your legislator. And finally, we spoke with leaders in Cairo, Illinois about the community's experience in a food desert 
and the solutions they're considering to address it. All right, I am here with Stephen Tarver and Marcella Woodson. Stephen is president of Men of Power, Women of Strength. Marcella is vice president. Together they are co-founders of the organization. Uh, Men of Power, Women of Strength is a community organization based in Cairo, Illinois. Thank you both so much for taking the time to come on the podcast and, and talk with us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Tell us a little bit about the organization, Men of Power, Women of Strength. Uh, who are you? What do you do? Why are you doing it? Well, in 2017, in April of 2017, we decided to create Men of Power, Women of Strength based on the housing crisis that uh, came into our area. Uh, prior to that, we had already been working in the community, working with the youth and just uh, volunteer um, type positions. But when the crisis hit, we knew we had to come at it a different approach. So we decided to start a nonprofit group and hoping, and hoping to unify our citizens so that we have a unified fight and hopefully save our community. So Men of Power, Women of Strength was developed basically to get our community to come together for a common cause, which at that time was to uh, fight hood and, and try to save the people from being evicted. You mentioned that Cairo is a food desert. And for someone listening who maybe doesn't, hasn't heard that term, you know, kind of generally it means that residents, residents in, within a food desert don't have access to um, affordable, healthy food. Um, but more specifically, can you kind of paint the picture of, of what is what is the food situation like in Cairo? Um, what kind of food do people have access to or, or not? Unfortunately, the only food uh, that we have access to in Cairo locally would be if you go to shop at the Dollar General. Um, we all know that that's not always the best nutritional <coughs> option, um, but what we've started was the Care Grow Garden that will provide um, local citizens of Cairo and surrounding areas the opportunity to um, have local produce available, um, you know, free at hand. Right now, the closest grocery store is about eight to 10 miles away. So there's a lot of uh, individuals in Cairo without transportation or, you know, disabled or elders um, who really don't have access to groceries. So it's vital um, that we continue to bring, you know, farmers together, um, local farmers markets, but also, again, those investors and developers who would be willing to assist us in bringing an actual grocery store. Um, so right now, pretty much traveling 10 to 25 miles is what you have to do to go grocery shopping. We, we've been gracefully blessed to have several organizations recently to start providing the, the, the uh, produce baskets or the food boxes. Um, that's been a blessing because it's been providing um, sometimes 75 to 250 boxes when they come in and that's and that's, those are like 20 pound boxes. So that gives our residents the ability to get some of the fresh vegetables and things that are needed during that time period. Our goal is hopefully that our garden will start producing to the fact we'll start producing that at a regular basis and continue with the collaborations that until we get that great big grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> so you started the Care Grow Community Garden and I love the name by the way. You started the Care Grow Community Garden in response to this. Um, how has it been received? Um, talk a little bit more about what it's like on the ground, you know, how, how the work is going. Well, it, it's been a journey. Um, we are right at a month in, and we actually have um, 
you know, little harvest now. Yes. <laughs> we yeah. have a little bit. Um, the garden is actually 8,750 square feet. Obviously, two people can't manage that. You know, um, we've planted an array of culinary and medicinal herbs. Um, we have the leafy greens. Um, we have uh, the beans and, you know, all, all of the food categories that we can grow in the garden. We're trying to reach out um, to be able to provide a nice, nutritious range of foods. Um, we're looking at right now needing volunteers. We're looking at needing people to come in and even help weed, you know, come in and help manage the garden. Um, these are things that we would like for citizens of Cairo to actually partake in, but most of our donations and assistance has actually been outside of Cairo. Um, so right now we're looking to grow the garden. We're looking to implement smaller community gardens throughout Cairo. Our main priority now is getting Cairo up and going and functional, like Steve said, to where we can provide a plentiful produce and, and things here in the community. Donations and things, as you mentioned, is coming outside the box. Mm -hmm. if, if you can imagine, and I always say, I put Carol in a box, and, and the box is bad right now. So anything <laughs> that happens in the box, it has to be um, proven almost. So we put the garden out there, we told them about the garden, we invited them out. We had very few participants, but that doesn't stop us from moving forward. So. We built the fence and we did the land and we planted the seeds and, and now we're to the point where we're still reaching out for volunteers, but the, the project is done. So now as we as we invite more people back there to take a look at this vast amount of dirt and grass, we're hoping that they'll start taking more ownership of it because it has their name on it. It doesn't say uh, Men of Howard's Garden. It doesn't say Steve or Marcy's. It says a Carroll Community Project. So hopefully as they start getting back there and viewing it more, they'll take more ownership. I'm not a gardener. I need them to take my place. So we'll be pushing hard to get more people involved. There's been disruption across the whole food system because of, of COVID. Um, I would suggest that it's more exposing some of the fragility and flaws in the system that pre-existed. We're just putting pressure on it right now and, and we're seeing those, those, those failures. Um, you know, first question, have you, ha has uh, Cairo been impacted by COVID generally? And um, second question, uh, you know, you, like you described, you already were facing a food crisis, if, you know, food desert. Um, talk a little bit about how the community garden um, works to perhaps inspire self-sufficiency to respond to um, what was already a lack of, of resources. Right. Um, I think that once the community starts to see the actual project, like Steve said, they'll get more involved in wanting to take ownership, not only at the community garden, but also, um, you know, homeowners. A couple of years ago, we worked on a planting project where we helped, I think, uh, 13 or 14 homeowners here in Carroll plant fruit trees um, you know, to sustain that at their properties or, you know, at their home. So we had good success from that. I think as, as people come out to the garden again, um, they'll see that it's not rocket science. They'll mm -hmm. see, um, you know, that it's something that is sustainable and it's nothing like going out in your backyard, you know, and picking your salad or going out in the backyard and being able to provide something to your neighbors that they don't have. 
So I think it's something that'll gradually catch on and more uh, homeowners and residents here in Carroll will start to implement home gardens. Prior to COVID, there was a few people that had small gardens mm -hmm. in their yards and I didn't take it as a necessity. But as we got into this, this season, it's very it's necessary to think about how can you maintain and, and provide for yourself. So I'm thinking now that this is taking place, because right now a, 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 a card of eggs is $3.49 at Dollar General. So you, you start thinking about these things. How can we start thinking of ways so if it happens again, we're, we're providing for each other, we're safe, we're secure, we don't feel like we, we're going to die from starvation or malnutrition. So I think more people have started looking at that. And, and, and as we mentioned, we have um, several other pieces of land in Carroll that we're willing to open up more community gardens. So if people are more willing to say, hey, we can, we can make this happen. Our goal is one day have that farmer's market provided mm -hmm. by the gardens in which we have put our, our efforts into so that therefore we don't have to worry about a semi-truck rolling in the town. We can continue to feed and at least we'll have salads if we don't have nothing else. <laughs> and you're working with local students, is that correct? Well, because of the COVID, we haven't got the students implemented. We've kind of put the program together. We have a teacher that has a class that he wants to get involved in it. So um, hopefully as we get this, this, this COVID deal under control, we'll get those students involved. Uh, we're also looking at getting our elementary, this is at the high school level. But our elementary school students, we're gonna to try to get them involved during the summer. We're gonna ask the parents who want their kids to uh, participate, we're gonna do a pumpkin patch. So each, each child will get a seed, they can name them, put them in the ground, talk to them, watch them flourish into this great big pumpkin by October so they can see how it happens at an early age. So that will spark the light in them that, hey, if I grew a pumpkin, I can grow a tomato, I like watermelons, I can grow a watermelon. So that's our summer goal. But once uh, school starts, we'll hopefully get more kids involved in our project. I would just um, add that we really, you know, need assistance in managing the garden. Um, and again, most of our help has been outside of Carroll, way outside the box. Um, so if anyone is actually listening and has uh, garden management resources or even, you know, the time to connect with us um, on ways that we can actually make our garden sustainable and keep it up and going, um, please feel free to reach out. Other than that, you know, just bringing the community on board, uh, continuing to do what we do and showing them um, that it takes, you know, a village, it's going to take community unity in order to keep this thing going and to get the other ones implemented throughout town. While these interviews occurred over the summer, we're largely in the same place now as we were then. This may be the greatest opportunity in our lifetimes to rehabilitate the food system, but there's a lot of interest in simply propping up the old system, as flawed as it is, and seeing how much more mileage we can get out of it before the wheels completely fall off. So we still need people to get involved, to take action with their choices and their voices, as Molly said. This can be done by buying from a local farmer like Dave Bishop, or by getting involved with Illinois Stewardship Alliance, or Men of Power Women of Strength, to further policy or support on-the-ground projects. And of course, Prairie Rivers Network continues to work with partners across the state to build a more just and equitable food system that heals the soil and protects our water. Thank you for listening and for your support.